This morning's passage will be 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in chapter, uh, verse 50. Uh, last week was Easter Sunday. Uh, typically, the American church will celebrate Easter Sunday and then kind of move on. But a lot of historical churches really celebrated the entire span of the time Jesus was on earth. As we know, he didn't just immediately ascend. But after his resurrection, he was on earth for a period of time before ascending. And so we're going to have a little series on the resurrection. And so every Sunday between now and May 16th will be, that will be six in a row where we highlight aspects of the resurrection and what it means to live a resurrected life now. I think all of us or many of us, if we've been exposed to Christianity, have heard of that concept that we're to live now as if we've already been raised. And yet we kind of go, but I mean, we're not immortal, right? Like, obviously, we have a pandemic, we get sick, we get hurt. So what is, it, it, what is this? What does it mean to live now in light of the fact that we've been raised with Christ? So that's sort of the question we're going to be exploring over these six weeks. And this morning we're looking at a, at a place where Paul uh, really spends a lot of verses on what it means. And he's writing to this congregation in Corinth uh, who are very, very messed up. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But he gives, these, he gives this just beautiful chapter, and I would commend it to you. But I'm going to start in chapter, or in verse 50, and then I'll explain a little bit more what's going on. So in verse 50, I'll pick up there. Read with me on the screen behind me or in your Bible. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable <clears throat> and we shall be changed. For this, perishable body, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we praise you for these truths. We know, Lord, that uh, I think the, those of us that are here that are in you, in Christ, walk with you, believe in you, so desperately want to understand and believe these words. And Father, for those who are not yet Christians, I pray that maybe through the gospel presentation this morning, they would understand freshly the beauty and the freedom we have in you, Jesus. Open our eyes, let us see. Amen. Uh, I've done a series on Corinth, and I'm really fascinated by the letter, of course, but by this city. Uh, the history of Corinth is um, they had been around for about 100 years. It was a Greek city that was destroyed, and then later the Roman Empire came in. One of the, one of the emperors rebuilt Corinth. Uh, it, it was at the southern end of an isthmus. I hate that word because it just makes you sound funny. And between these two waterways, it's super dangerous to, to sail around the bottom, so an industry had been raised because they had created an above-ground 
process of transferring the ships and the car load or the, the loads. And so it has a kind of an old west feel like the gold rush, where if you think about the old west, a lot of the landed gentry, the people with money stayed at the east coast, but then those that kind of wanted to strike it out and make their name go west, and then out comes other situations like maybe all the different occupations and industry that surround the mining industry. So Corinth was not a place where the Roman landed gentry went. It was the place where if you wanted money, you were like a soldier, you were somebody that wasn't from a wealthy family, this would be your chance to go and strike it rich. And so it became this cosmopolitan city, and it's only 100 years old at the time of Paul's uh, writing. A lot of crazy things in Corinth. One of the, issue, one of the other ish, interesting things about Corinth is they had the games called the Isthmus. Someone else just start saying that word. Can you dub that for me? I'll just do this, and then you just play the word Isthmus. Games. And the, there's the Olympics, and then there was this game. And this was like second only to the Olympics. And so the whole region had this kind of athletic feel. And you get a sense when you read through the letter and when you study the archaeology and different things that they loved their body. Does that sound familiar? Like they loved athletic bodies. And so, and they were successful. And so when you come into this chapter, in verse 12, Paul says, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. And you can't believe it. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars have tried to wrestle with what he's saying. What, what is it they believe? And the best thing we can gather is they do believe Jesus was raised. I'm not sure what the people were saying, but what we know is there's a sense that whatever it is they are experiencing in their faith, it's not in line with them resurrecting. So here's our carryover for our modern day. I think all Christians that really are, I believe in Christ, I believe this Bible, we say I believe in the resurrection. And what we mean is that one day, someday when I die, whatever that is, it will happen to me. But we have no idea how our life today links up to that. And so we have this sort of dichotomy between what we hope happens one day, someday, and what we do every day here. That is very similar to what they were doing. What Paul was frustrated by was like, you're living, Corinthians, as if the resurrection doesn't matter. And, and he goes through this kind of chiasm. If, if you're not going to be raised, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then why do we preach? You know, and he goes through this whole process, but then he comes around and says, but Christ was raised, and, and, and you will be raised. So here's the point. There are present benefits to the resurrection that we have to dig into. It's not some future thing only, though it is. Its fullness is in the future. But there is some kind of mystery Paul even alludes to in our passage that says, in the present moment, we can have a sense of what that resurrection feels like. And let me give you a hint. It's not like you're going to have the ability to appear in a room that's locked like Jesus. So it's not that. Okay? We're not talking the more you get it, the more magic you are. We're talking this. The more you understand it, the more freedom you have to become Christ-like. The more we will actually carry out you know, the, the, the works of Jesus with freedom. Uh, so here's, here's our kind of the process of the fallen condition. We want, like the Corinthians, to have our life here, which is different from the life to come. And we, want, we, we really are excited by our modern conventions, the ways we can make our lives better. I think Christianity is swept up in that. 
And part of what Paul is asking us to do is to die to that concept and find freedom in the resurrection that will benefit us in the present life. We're going to hone in on verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I've preached this, past, this chapter several times. This is the little the sentence I want to hone in on, and we're going to build our outline around it. The resur- Christ's resurrection frees us from death will be point one. Christ's resurrection frees us from death by removing the sting, which is sin, point two. And point three, ready? Can you guess how it's going to begin? Christ's resurrection frees us from death by removing the sting of death by taking away the law from us. We no longer are measured by the law. So we'll walk those three things. And that's going to be the backdrop of the series. We need to understand these concepts. So let's start with death. Paul is talking a lot about death. He quotes the Old Testament when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And of course, the entire concept of resurrection is built around the concept that we know we're dying and we're afraid of dying, right? We know it. And most of us, if we think about what death is, we think, and I've said this recently, of that sort of that last moment, right? That last, the line goes beep, you know, that's death. Well, that's not actually death. And I don't think any of us will even be aware of that moment. Um, in your worship guide, I, I gave, I put one quote. I just like to see if you read your quotes. So I slipped in a Woody Allen quote, which is probably not wise at this time of, just pretend I don't know anything about the news. Uh, Woody Allen wrote years ago, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think a lot of us kind of have that mindset. Like everything before that's fine and gravy, but then that's going to be bad. And yet the Bible's picture of death is far different. If you read in Genesis, when the serpent says to Eve, like, what, what's going to happen if you eat the fruit? Well, we'll die, you know. And he's like, you won't surely die. Then they eat the fruit. Did they, did they die? No, they seemed to keep living, except there was a problem. They immediately felt shame. They immediately knew they were naked. With their partner, they start grabbing fig leaves. They hear God walking in the cool of the day. They run and hide. God says, where are you, Adam? And Adam's like, I was afraid. I was fearful of you. So please, if you, each of these points has one simple thing I want you to take away. Death is separation from God. We were made to be connected to God. Like, an ox, like if you're in outer space, you have the oxygen cord. We need God. We need to be connected to him. And death is that being removed. Last week we studied uh, from John 20. And remember how... Mary, seeing the resurrected Jesus, clings to him, weeping and in joy at this point. And he says, Mary, I have to go. I have to go to my father, go tell the brothers I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What, what Jesus is saying is I'm going away. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, which he says and does. And you're now going to be connected to God. Death is no longer over you. Sleep. And it's just like, that's what it's going to be like. Um, with each of these points, there's a kind of a, an inter- a twist, and I'm not sure this will come across. I, I, you know, you always wonder when you preach a sermon, like, is my thought going to make sense? But the, that's kind of, the world is afraid of death, and so the world doesn't think about it. Like, that's, that's kind of the problem, right? It's sort of like, that is so overwhelming, I don't want to even think about it. Christians seem to be super fixated on death. And I think the world might look at us like we're crazy, 
And ironically, we're the ones that are saying it's actually over. We don't die. So that's kind of in your, I want you to have that in your mind. I'm going to read the quote from Lewis uh, that kind of juxtaposes the different views of death. He says, and what he's talking about now is the sense of, again, the world's way of dealing with death is ignoring it and doing what it does. The Christian's way of dealing with death is we go toward it, right? And we go toward Jesus. And he says, this principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run. He's saying look, just basically live for yourself and what you'll find in the long run is hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So death then... And the sting of death is separation from God. And for the Christian, the irony, the, the paradox of the gospel is we're made alive in Christ. So we actually run to the cross. We run to that sense or feeling of death in Christ. And that's where freedom comes. So I'm going to keep building on that by moving to our next point. We're walking through verse 56. Uh, the resurrection of Christ frees us from death by freeing us from its sting. Okay, what is the sting of death? Look at verse 56 again. The sting of death is sin. So this is a really fun sermon. We talk about death. Now I'm going to talk about sin. You ready for this? Sin is really bad, so don't do it anymore. Are we good? I'll move on to the next point. Um, sin is, we, we don't, I think we struggle with our concept of sin. I know I continually struggle with my definition of sin. Let me say, I think most of us rightly grasp that the, the particular expressions of wrongdoing is certainly what sin is. I think where we could do a little bit more work and what the Bible drives us to do is we're trying to look deeper into the reasons we choose sin. The Bible is calling us to, to understand that really sin is a response, what, the, what Paul's saying, to death. So if my death spiritually is that I am no longer attached to my maker, then the sting of that death is my sin. And what that means is, okay, I still have needs. I still have wants. I still have requirements as a living being. I'm not going to turn to God. What am I going to do? I'm going to turn in. And all the decisions that I make from this point forward are sin. I'm choosing my own way. So sin is much more than just those particular things. It's, it's a, you know, I've quoted a lot from Richard Lovelace. It's a, it's a deeply rooted system, like a complex system, he says, of our thoughts, our words, our behaviors, all connected in their alienation from God, the connection to death. These are the outward fruits, if you will, of the fact that we are no longer connected to God. They are our strategies for finding life. Another way to think of, of sin is, the, uh, one author put it, the vandalism of shalom. Shalom means flourishing, the way the world should have been. 
sin is the vandalization of that. Let me give you one more thought before I, I try to unpack this and connect it to everything else. Sin doesn't exist on its own. Sin is always the, the marring of good. Does that make sense? Like a cancer cell. You know, cancer doesn't just exist. It's, it's a cell turned wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor. Does that sound right to people? Is that kind of what cancer does? I'm sorry. I'm not, my understanding is there's all the causes of it. But it's when the cell becomes morphed, and now it's its own problem. It's its own thing. It's a cancer cell. And so if you pick a sin, lust, pornography, it's a longing for intimacy. There's a good gift turned inward, right? Uh, Sloth, a longing for rest turned inward. I mean, every sin we have is a strategy to take the good gifts of God and find completion apart from him. And when we can begin to understand that, we can see how the resurrection of Christ might set us free from not only the death that we have, the separation from God, but might begin to remove the sting of sin because we can start to see how sin is actually harmful. Now, here's the paradox. The paradox with death was the world avoids it but finds it. The Christian goes toward it and doesn't face it. That's the paradox of death. The paradox of sin is uh, it, it's the worst thing. Thing, like it ruins you, it, it mars you, right? But yet it feels like awesome in the beginning. And even when it, you get to a stage of sin patterns where sin doesn't feel good, it at least removes the stress of life for, apart from the, the maker. Does that make sense? So sins are always that choice of removing, I think, that burden. Let me give you an example. I was watching, Brian recommended it, so I watched Hemingway. On, CB, on uh, PBS, very good documentary, Ken Burns. I think it's new, uh, yet very, hard, very dark. So, you know, Hemingway, one of our best writers, ours, America's, I don't know, the world, humans. But he had a really dark life. Um, now, if I were to just say, here are the sins that I saw in that documentary, and, and they sort of indicated these were sins, right? He had four marriages and maybe other people, you would call that sin. And in each one, he would find the next person before, you know, he, there was sin. He was an alcoholic, like clearly a raging alcoholic. Um, there's a lot more. You might say this, this is, don't, don't call, this is the effects of sin, but he struggled with depression. He struggled with, with anxieties. He, in other words, you could start to name so many things about him. But when you watch the biography, and this is what I love about good biographies is you see some of these deeply rooted causes. We're not saying he didn't do those things. Those were his own volitional choices, not the depression, but like the, the you know, the, some of the decisions he made. But if you watch the documentary, you see, and the biographer does a really, all of them, all the people interviewed are sort of various biographers, but they do a great job of showing how from a very early age, his relationship was so marred with his mother. And there's no mention of God anywhere in his life. And all I can say is I went from thinking, what a great writer to like, Lord Jesus, like I'm around his age. Like he died at 61, but around 44, he's becoming old, you know. And I'm like, okay, we're not guaranteed friends that are my age or older of getting wiser with age. And we're just not. In fact, the trajectory is death unless we cling to Jesus. And so sin is not just the outward choices that are not appropriate. It's this deeply rooted complex system 
that stems into our entire lives that Jesus wants to come in and heal at its root. The sting of death is sin, right? Um, I wish I could read my handwriting. Something I've been working on since I was a little kid. I'm going to assume those are great points <laughs> that we're going to. T- I did know I could read it, by the way, and here's what I was writing. Uh, if you look at Romans 6, this is our transition to our last thought. Paul says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means? And he begins to unpack this, w- this amazing and hard to grasp reality that you have two options to be a slave to sin or a slave to God. Now, that word in our modern era can trigger people, and I understand that, slave. But just understand he's saying you can be in captivity to, in a negative way, sin, which is marring you, or in a way, true freedom is being captivated by the God who made you and loves you and in whom you will flourish and have freedom, right? But there's no neutrality. But what's crazy is he goes on to explain the similar concept with law. You are either a law keeper or you're set free in Christ. So let's now look at this verse and why it's so profound for me. The sting of death is sin. Okay, we get that, right? Death is alienation from God. It's sting is the thing we do to find life apart from God. And the power of sin is, and I'm telling you, you all know the word, but I don't think most of us would plug this word in. And the power of sin is the law? What is he talking about? Um, I can't, I would need volumes and bigger brain to, to really help you fully grasp this. Because I don't fully grasp this, but let me give a few things that could help us. Number one, law, one of our problems with law, when we come to it, is we treat it like it ha- we have to define what law is. Let me just say, law is, is the character of God, the character of Jesus. What he would do is law. When Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, he didn't mean I came and I read everything, I'm going to do all the, it's like, it, it, it emanates from, it's who I am. Law is beautiful. Law keeping is really hard. Now, if we were Adam and Eve before the fall, law keeping would have been easy. In heaven, law keeping is going to be easy. There's no sin. But we live in a season where you cannot keep the law. What I mean is you can't fully accomplish it. Now, Christians will, because of the spirits dwelling in us, begin to obey the law. But the key to obeying the law is it no longer can condemn you. I, I read this one of the commentaries. Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. He lived two years in this city, and in there he's working out and understanding what we now know of Romans 6, 7, and 8, which if you don't know those three chapters, like as a Christian, there's your chapters. Gospel of John, Romans 6, 7, 8. That's my, again, nothing's more important than other, don't get me wrong, but a good starting place of really meditating and chewing, Romans 6, 7, and 8. And what you find is, that we turn to law-keeping to feel what only God can give us. Death, we're separated from God. Sin, the things I'm choosing 
in order to receive what only he can give me. Law is typically my strategy. What do you do after a huge Thanksgiving meal when you've just overeaten? Or anytime, you just, you know you did. But you just, you know, have you ever had that moment where you're like, I did it again? What do you do? I'm going to go on a diet. Law. Right? Well, I didn't overeat because I didn't know the rule. I get the rule. There's a capacity in my stomach. I overate, if you really want to get into the psychology of it, probably because in the Bible is full of like, their God is their stomach. I probably overate out of some fallen sense of security. And even, if you really want to go down the path, even knowing I would feel awful later, I didn't care. There's a lot of stuff going on there, isn't there? And the law doesn't help you. Do you know how many health books I could give you that would, if you follow them to a T, you'd be great? There's like 82 diets we could follow that we'd be really fine with. It's not that we haven't found the right diet. It's that the law doesn't come in and give you power. So, law is beautiful. Law keeping is not beautiful. And so what do we do? Well, everybody has two options. You live by the law, which means you're in slavery to sin. Or you live out of Christ who fulfilled the law. Now, there is this interesting little middle-of-the-road group that's like the Eastern religions where they go, we're, we're practicing. Have you ever, you know, and there's a lot of coolness to that. Like, I don't, I don't ever perfect anything. I'm just practicing Zen or I'm just practicing something. It kind of takes the pressure off. So there is a little bit of this made-up thing. The problem is I don't want someone practicing brain surgery. Like, there does need to be someone who's fulfilled the law. And then, once that's happened... That's our Lord, Savior, Jesus. Now we are free to operate as outside of the penalty of the law, which sets us free to do things that will really amaze ourselves and our community because we're no longer trying to keep the law. Okay, um, I need to illustrate that and kind of move toward a close. People who go skiing often measure how many falls they have to tell you how good they are. Have you ever heard of people do this? Have you ever done this? Yet the great skiers, the greatest ones, fall all the time. They don't, no one's like, how many times you fall, Bob? Like, they don't care. It was, did you see that jump where I did that thing and I did, you know. You, the gospel says, listen, you are safe to love and to move out and to care for people. Um, one example I came up with, I don't know, if I try to tell my wife this and she's like, I think this makes sense, so we'll see. I think health and medicine. So Hemingway uh, had a lot of Ill things like blood pressures and alcoholism and other depression. So they gave him just tons of medication. And the biographers are like, that medication like really worked him over. And we know that. Like a lot of people who come to the desire to become healthy often will say, I want to get off all this medication. But the irony is that medication is there to make you healthy. And I think most doctors would agree, like, ideally you wouldn't need this, right? You, when you get in, like, I used to sell a heart medication uh, statin. And, and the goal would be, like, diet and exercise is the goal. Like, you always led with that, right? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Give me the statin. Like, and I want to just, that's my comparison. Like, the diet and exercise is the, Jesus, like, here's the real way you get where you're going. The law is like, no, no, just give me the medicines. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And I'm going to take these. And if I do this correctly, my few numbers will become something better. 
That's the law. What, what's the not, what about the people who say, I don't want to take any medicine? Well, they're just going over here and doing, using the law and saying, I don't want that. I'm not going to take any medicine. I'm just going to die differently. I'm going to have a different goal. My goal is I don't want to take medicine every day or whatever. But the gospel says, how about we scoot those aside and we get healthy because Jesus paid it all. That's the goal. So what does that look like in the Christian life? Uh, Paul writing this beautiful, and I, it didn't actually occur to me until like recently, but he starts in chapter 1 to this group, this ragtag group of people who like kind of the modern church. They're like, look, I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. I'm doing what I want. Paul, you were great a few years ago, but you've, my understanding is you're in prison anyway. You know, I'm, I'm cool. And then he writes this letter, and he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So he starts with the cross. Now, wait a minute, Paul. We, we're Christians. We've already gone through this. No, you never get past the cross. And then at chapter 15, which is one chapter away from the end, he spends the entire chapter on the resurrection. So for the Christian, the way we experience the resurrection is through our death, as Lewis so beautifully writes, by going to the cross and naming all of the sins we struggle with. And please hear me, not the outward things. Those are important. We confess those sins, particular sins. But we have the courage because of Christ to say, Lord Jesus, I didn't believe you were enough here. And we, we dig deeper and we dig deeper. We're going to that root. We're finding, he's guiding us through his spirit to find those places where we're not trusting his goodness. When the, and guess what? This is the paradox of the law. So everything had a paradox. Death had the paradox, right? Remember the paradox of death was the world avoids it and gets it. Christians go at it and we don't face it. That was the paradox of death. The paradox of sin was it seems to feel good, it kills you, right? And yet by going toward the cross, you're freed from it. And then this third paradox of the law is the law is so bad by trying to keep it, but we still, as Christians, cherish its property of exposing our sin. Like we actually like it more because it actually shows us the real depths of our need in the places where Christ will reach and heal us. See, most versions of law keeping are actually broken down like medicines. It's sort of these attempts to just pretend and Jesus is like, I'm actually going to go all the way in and heal every part of you. Um, that is what Jesus does. One illustration that I just wanted to kind of close with is um, in a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 4. So in 1, he brings up the cross. In 15, the resurrection. But in chapter 4, he says, he finally says to the Corinthians, because they're, they're basically judging him and they don't like him. And he's writing this hard letter. And he says this, I care not how you regard me if you judge me. Right? It's a very small thing. I don't even judge myself, he says, though I'm not aware of anything. He says this, therefore, it is the Lord who judges me. That is a most powerful thing. The law, the law and the people who wield it in your own, self, your own brain is going to try to come at you and judge you. 
And it's not that we don't want to improve or get better, but it's that Paul's saying, I already have the cross. I already am free. Does that mean there's nothing I do wrong? No, that's not the point. But the point is if you've done something wrong, you're not going to melt away and Jesus is going to lead you, which is our deepest fear. In fact, if you've done something wrong, Jesus is like, I already know. And I've already paid for it. Come and tell me for your own growth. So the mystery of the law is it actually drives us to the cross. And the bolder we are in doing that, the more we bring to Jesus, I think, not I think, I know from Scripture, the more healing and the more life he brings to us. And that is what it means to live the resurrected life. That's a big a beginning um, intro discussion to it. We'll look at other passages as we go. My, my application will be this in the last two minutes to just ask you to do this. Where are you coming up with strategies? What strategies are you thinking of? Are you even aware of the, the strategy-making system you have? How am I going to feel better about myself? How am I going to do this? How am I going to get that person to like me? How am I going to reject? Like, what are the, what's the thinking? Start to pay attention to those things because those are law-keeping strategies. These are techniques, Christian life hacks that you're making up to get and feel better and bypass Jesus. You see what I'm saying? I just want everyone to tell me your strategies. That's what I feel like. I just feel like everyone's like, what? This is like the most important part. Know your strategies. Are you, is it self-improvement? Is it other people? I'm going to go after other people. Is it I'm going to start a new system here? I'm going to fix that. Those things are fine. I'm not criticizing those things, but often they're there to medicate us just to get us to the moment of pain. And, and that's the same thing as when we eat the food, we're full, I'm going to go on a diet. And then guess what? We digest the food and we're no longer interested in dieting. So it's saying, no, 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 I'm going to go to Jesus for help and healing, through prayer, through his word, through fellowship. And I'm going to not turn to these laws that will only make me more and more self-reliant and autonomous. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for our desire to be good apart from you. The church at large, Father, for many, many years has preached that. I think a lot of us have been raised with that mindset that we get better and better and better on our own. When clearly what you have always taught is that the only way we grow is by coming to the cross and confessing or the particular areas where we're not trusting you, receiving your mercy and grace. Lord, even in the revelation in the scripture we read, that at the end of time, we will celebrate your victory, we will celebrate your power and majesty, and yet we will see you as a lamb, a sacrifice. And Lord, to see you as a sacrifice means that even then, we're going to be aware of our desperate need of a savior. Lord, that we will always need you. We will never be whole apart from you. Thank you, Lord. I pray you would open our eyes to walk in light of that resurrection. Amen.